Thank you, Mission Church. You can be seated this morning. Well, if you're new to uh, Mission, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Mission Church, and we thank you guys for coming and joining us uh, here this morning as we continue a sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew called King and Kingdom. And uh, we're kind of in a mini-series within that series because Jesus transitions in his ministry. He has been called, he's been inaugurated, he has been healing people, he's been casting out demons, Um, but most importantly, he has been preaching and teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, that he is, in essence, the king of that kingdom, and that he is establishing a new way of order, a new culture uh, within the city and within the land in which we live. And so today, uh, we're going to be covering the passage that Matt uh, read for us. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. If you're not turned there, please uh, do so now. Um, There should be a black Bible next to you. If you don't have a Bible, then please take that Bible. That Bible is a gift from us to you. Um, And so please use that and and read it. Fall in love with the king of it, and may it point you uh, near to him. At any given point in time, There are thousands upon thousands of planes flying above our heads. Now, I don't know if you've seen any movies with Kirk Cameron in them, where usually Jesus comes back and a bunch of planes come crashing down to the ground. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, But uh, we, as we're sitting here, can be very unaware of, unless we see one flying across the sky, about how many planes are really in the air. You can even watch online now. There are these different uh, websites and things where you can physically track now, if you're on a plane or if you know someone that's on a plane, you can track where that plane is. And what's crazy is you can look at these maps now and see like the United States is completely covered in planes. Now what's interesting about um, planes and flying is Man, if, if they are one degree off, if that nose of that plane is, is one degree, two degrees off from its true trajectory of where it's really supposed to be going, guess what will happen? It will not land there where it's supposed to. It will not arrive in its pre-described destination. It's going to you know, land somewhere else, going to go somewhere off. And so just a slight degrees off from center will often lead people in a direction that they never meant to go, really. Or maybe they did desire to go. But it can even lead them to be in an unaware, because if you're a passenger inside of that plane and your pilot has, has turned it one degree off of center, you don't know where you're heading. You don't know where you're going. Brothers and sisters, I would continue this morning uh, that within the American church, and that's what I can speak into because I'm part of that, um, is, is it's in some cases way off center. There are some places and people that would consider themselves to be Christians that are definitely way off center. And if center is Jesus and him and his desires for us, there are definitely some cases where there are extremes but in most cases, it's, it's one degrees, two degrees off. And yet, those small turning of the dial has led many in, in a foreign direction, not arriving where they're hoping or accomplishing the purpose and will that Jesus would have for us. Man, my heart's desire this morning is, is for some slight course correction. And I'm actually encouraged by this, and I'll I'll get to the reason why here in just a few moments. Um, But as we learned last week, we need to see people the way that Jesus sees people. We learned in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 last week that Jesus churns his ministry, uh, not just communicating to the masses, but he is communicating to the disciples, and then he is calling for them to see the people as he sees them. And how does he see them? He says he sees them as torn apart, mangled sheep that have been cast down. They are harassed and helpless. And then Jesus, the Bible tells us, has compassion on them. And this compassion is the witnessing of someone in dire need that compels action at all cost. 
Compassion is sacrificing of self for the need of another. So Jesus says, man, when you see people as mangled and cast down and torn apart, laying there helpless, we should have compassion on them, that we should have something deep within our very gut that longs to help and to serve those people. And then in the king's mission, he gives us a third kind of action or point to consider And he ends that in chapter 9 by saying this, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers to his harvest. And so what have we seen in the king's mission? Man, we need to have eyes to see people as Jesus sees them. We need to have compassion upon those whom we see. And thirdly, we need to pray. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, we get a little bit more information of what happens to Jesus after he says this. So he calls his disciples. He says, God's got this harvest. He's got this judgment that is coming, and yet they are ripe to be harvested. So we need to pray to God to send more laborers to that harvest. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, And in these days he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. So Jesus is, again, he's, he's looking at these disciples. He's looking at more than twelve. He has gathered some followers, I believe, that are authentic and genuine. And then there are the, the fringe people. Then there are the people that are just there for their own purposes and their own glory. But out of that mass group of people, there truly are followers of Jesus. There truly are disciples. And Jesus is calling them to fervently pray that God would send forth these labors. And then immediately, what does Jesus go and do? He goes and do, he goes and does what he has commanded those disciples to do. Jesus prays all night. And we can struggle to pray for five minutes, can't we? Without our minds wondering about all the different things that we need to be thinking about. And yet Jesus prays all night and then we come to, or to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and what does it tell us? And he called to him his 12 disciples. So he, he sees them, he has compassion on them, he prays, he even prays all night before he makes these decisions. And he called to him the, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So again, Jesus is, is saying, come join me. Let's, let's pray that God would send laborers. And then what does God do? He sends laborers. He calls them out. The Bible tells us here in this very passage, um, we're not sure truly how many people are following Jesus at this point, but he calls out of those disciples these 12 men, these 12 disciples. The word called here is sometimes translated actually to be the word summons. We get this picture that, that Jesus is, is kind of using this divine tractor beam to call out these men for this specific purpose. It was their appointment. It was their commissioning into the king's service. And then we get that long list of these 12 men. Now what's interesting is Matthew is the only one that decides or puts in there what he does. And I think there's a reason behind that. It's because of what we covered a few weeks ago and that Matthew and his calling and the idea that tax collectors are these chief of sinners, that they were considered to be you know, just deplorable by this culture. They were hated by these people. And yet... Matthew records, and as we know through the other Gospels as well, is that Jesus called the chief of sinners, that he called the worst of the worst to do what? To come and to follow after him. It's also important to notice that these men did not carry with them a specific skill set that would be good for this journey, that would be good for this mission. They weren't in a, a, a personal state of great holiness, But rather, as Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
Or in John chapter 15, verse 16, when it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. See, when Jesus calls you, it is irresistible. It will happen. You will come. You will go. This is what happens. In, in Romans chapter 8, is it not in the golden chain of salvation that it starts out by saying that those whom God has called will be justified? They are predestined. They, they are glorified. They will be glorified. This chain is unbreakable. When God calls Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, guess what the dead man does? He comes. Why? Because the king has called him. He has willed that into existence according to whom he desired. These men were not called out of compulsion. They were not called out of their abilities. Jesus is not looking at Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and Kobe Bryant's. Jesus is, how I many of you guys, we grew up in school playing P.E., and this eventually became uncool. And so if you go to school now and you watch a P.E. class, they do not let them do this anymore. But the way that I grew up in the 80s of playing P.E. was the P.E. teacher who usually was wearing really short, short bike shorts was typically a nearly overweight man uh, wearing short shorts, a really tight shirt, wore a whistle, and every time somebody got a home run, he'd go, right? Anybody follow me? Anybody have that PE teacher? All right, that's who I had. But they would pick out two guys or two gals, and they would do a schoolyard pickup, right? So one person over here would be like, I want Justin. This person over here would go, I want Brian. And you always knew who the losers in every class were because they always got picked last. It was the most awkward situation to get down and be like, I guess I'll take Eric. <laughs> I mean, it was, you, you hated to get Eric. You wanted the Justins, you wanted the Brines, and yet when Jesus shows up on the scene to choose his disciples, which was never heard of before, who does he pick? He picks the men at the end of the line. He doesn't pick the most qualified. He picks whom he desires. Now, this was shocking to these men. Again, there are lots of qualified people now standing in front of Jesus. And, and so this brought to them, not a point of arrogance, but brought to them great humility at the realization of what God had done in their lives. Notice with me in chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus sins. So he sees them. He has compassion for them. He prays, God, send forth laborers. Then what's he do? He chooses laborers. Then what's he do? He sends those laborers out. Notice verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent, excuse me, 10, 5. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. Notice in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, what are we supposed to be praying for? That God would send out. What does Jesus do the next day? He sends them out. It's the, it's the same terminology. It literally means, as I told you last week, to light a fire under someone. It literally means to cast them out, to pick them up and to, to send them forth. And so Jesus has prayed for this. He's encouraged us to pray for this. And then he does it, instructing them. Go, no, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheet of the, the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. So before Jesus sends them out, before he casts them out, before he throws them out into the mission field, he does give them some instructions. And that's kind of what we're going to cover over the next few weeks beginning today. You know, according to, to the commentators, these were not suggestions. These were not, ah, if you feel like it. Um, the way I taught my kids how to swim was I put life jackets on them when they were really small children and we tossed them in the water, okay? They learned how to swim, okay? My son, who has special needs, cash float, and he lays back on his back and he floats, okay? 
That's how we taught them to do that. This is a picture that we get of Jesus, is that with little instruction, but with some, here's what you do. And he tosses them into the mission field. We get this picture here, and I love this because I, I love studying military and military history. I love military movies. I've told you guys that before. Um, Jesus is instructing them, this idea of instructing, I want you to circle that if you have your own Bible, is, is literally within Scripture, within the original language. It's a, it's a Greek term, um, it's actually a military term. It literally paints this picture that you have this commander, General Patton, you got this guy, you've got this general, you had this, this king, um, and he is standing before his troops, and he is giving orders, and these orders must be completed at all cost. And these soldiers are to obey this at all cost. The word includes a, that a person is bound to this, that it is a, a covenant, it's a commandment, it's an order. You must accomplish this mission. I mean, how many movies have we seen? I've been back into running and uh, trying to prepare my body some, and um, and in doing so, um, at the gym I work out at, they have a theater room, and they have Netflix in there, and you can watch whatever you want to watch. And one day, uh, no one was in there, and I thought, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch Top Gun. All right, so I'm in there running and every time it says danger zone I run faster I mean it was awesome um, and so I'm in there watching Top Gun and, and, and all of this movie and all these military movies are what well we had this objective out here this is how we have to accomplish this objective if we don't accomplish this objective then people are gonna lose their lives people are going to die and we're to do this at all cost even if that means what we die how many movies are based off of around that same exact principle? We can name list after list after list after list after list. So Jesus, as the commander-in-chief, as the king, as this military uh, might. Remember, this is a time when presidents, when kings, when rulers didn't just send people off into battle, but they went themselves Jesus never calls us to do anything, brothers and sisters, that he is unwilling to do himself. May we never forget that God is a missionary, that God is on mission, that Jesus is on mission, that he left a place, he went to a foreign land, called this earth. Why? To win his bride, to save the church, to save his sheep at all cost, sacrificed his life for that mission. Jesus tells us here, and I don't get too caught up in the whole, um, just don't go to the Gentiles yet. Um, later, he's going to tell them to go to the Gentiles. Pretty much the whole back half of your New Testament is the church going to those folks. But hey, they're newbies. All right, let's, let's scale it down. All right, and I think that there's a lot of other implications that we can get into is that primarily Jesus and the early church, they went to the Israelites first. They were given the law. They knew this person of God. They were promised the Messiah. And so we're going to build the church. All the early church people, these 12 disciples, even Jesus himself, they were what? They were Jewish. Later, they will go to the Gentiles. Look in verse 7. And proclaim as you go and saying the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received uh, without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper in your belts. That's a money term. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And in, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in, in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if that house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So quickly, in kind of explaining this passage, we call it exegeting the passage. Let me kind of finish out here what the passage is trying to say. One is the message. This is verses 7 through 8. What is the message? What are they supposed to do when they go into these cities? They preach the word. 
What is the word that they preach? That the kingdom of God is at end. This is the same message that John the Baptist was preaching and that, that Jesus is preaching. It is the same message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is there. The king is here. Repent from your sins. Turn from your evil ways. Follow this man named Jesus. So the same thing that Jesus is preaching, the same thing that the forerunner John the Baptist is preaching, is the same thing that Jesus wants these to preach. He's not saying come up with your own presentation. He's not saying divert from what I've been showing you, but preach the exact same thing. Accompanying that and second to that, meet people's needs. Meets people's needs. Care for the sick. Cast out demons. Heal people. Does Jesus do that? Yes. Jesus does that. You know, one of the things that I, I love about Hope House, and this is not in any downgrading to any other the ministry or anything like that, but I just, um, one of the things I love about Hope House in the helping and caring for the poor, that it is done so through the presentation of the gospel. And if we, if we stop doing that, if Hope House ministry stopped doing that, then I, I believe that it has lost its biblical focus. We help because of the gospel. We serve people because of the gospel. If you see the homeless person on the side of the street, I'm not saying that you shouldn't help them, but you need to like hand them some water, but they need to know the gospel before those things. So a lot of times in Christendom, we can get into this idea that just handing somebody some food or, or just giving somebody some water and not mentioning the gospel is in some way missions or evangelism. And it's not. It's a great good deed. Okay? But it is is center. We do those things through the gospel to speak the gospel. We proclaim first. We provide second. Because the greatest need is the proclamation, is a sin issue. Those people are going to get hungry again. They're going to get thirsty again. They're going to need a place to stay tomorrow night. So there's a greater need there that Jesus saw and that he also compels into his disciples, into those men. Those men for this specific journey was proclaim the gospel and secondly, heal these people, meet their needs, provide for them. Okay? We always need to remember this. The poor are the physical illustration of of our spiritual condition. I do not think that it is by chance or coincidence that God tells us, that Jesus tells us to go to the poor and the sick. We should still do that. Are there ministries for the wealthy? Yes, but there is a, a, a dire need uh, uh, and that Jesus goes over and over and over again through the gospels that we should be visiting sick people, that we should be ministering to the poor, and caring for individuals. Why? Because they're a physical illustration of your, my, spiritual condition. Number two, the provision. This is verses 9 through 10. You need to understand what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is saying that God will provide your every need. God will provide your every need. He won't provide your every want, but he will provide your every need. If you are engaged in mission, preaching this gospel, helping the poor, caring for the sick, then God is going to provide your every need. You do not be concerned with with all of the material things that can hold you back. Let go of the plow is an illustration that we see in the Old Testament and even some glimpses possibly in the New Testament is that you don't need to hold on to all of this stuff or those excuses. Well, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I need to go bury my father. And what's, what's the picture of the gospel? Jesus says, no, it's, it is time to go. It is time to follow. It is time to engage inside of this mission. I have a job for you to do. You can't cling to those things. Cling to me. Leave everything behind. Jesus will provide for us. What is the response? Verses 11 through 15. 
there will be those who respond favorably, favorably to the mission and to the message. If these guys are engaged in, in mission, if they are living a missional life, if they're evangelizing other individuals, then there are going to be people who are favorably, they, they want to know about this. They are hungry to know about this. Our partners in reaching the Songhai in Africa, I've heard on several occasions these conversations that often happen around a table or around a meal with gentlemen who are intrigued by hearing the gospel and up will walk a random individual and sit down beside them and say, I want to know more about this Jesus that you're talking about. I've never heard this. Can you tell me more? So there, if we're reaching and constantly and daily sharing the gospel with people, Jesus is saying, guess what? There are going to be people that are at peace with this. They're going to accept you. They're going to accept this message. However, there are also going to be those who will respond by rejection. There will be those who do not believe. There will be those who reject you personally. There will be those who reject your mission. And yet, what does Jesus say in this haunting, haunting verse? In verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. God so destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities, that we can't even find them. They have no idea where these cities are. And yet Jesus says when those people reject your message, when they reject you, when they reject this message, it will be worse for them. I don't think we celebrate in that. But if anything, it leads us to see them as Jesus sees them. Helpless and harassed, mangled, thrown down. That we have compassion upon those individuals and we seek that God would not remove his hand eternally from them but ultimately eventually they would be saved so brothers and sisters guess what we're to preach the same message we preach the same message we've tried to get really cute haven't we We've tried to make it into something more spectacular, and it needs to be more entertaining. And as a person who proclaims the gospel um, to you and is trying to feed you with the gospel, man, I can feel that tension as we often feel like, man, we need to entertain some folks, and we need to draw some folks in. And yet the gospel um, isn't that complex. It has complex implications and beautiful implications, but getting down to the simple gospel that God created, that man has fallen, that God has redeeming his people through the person and work of Jesus, and that there is a swift return, that Jesus is coming back for those people, and that truth of those points causes us to respond. We will respond in fellowship and repentance, or we will respond in rejection. It's that simple. It took a minute. It's the same message that these disciples were preaching, which is the same message that Jesus was preaching, which is the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. Don't try to fluff it up. We preach the same message. We have the same provision. Guess what? I, I, I get paid, as, as the gospel even tells us later on in his work, in the, the writings of Paul, that a man should make his living, if he is a preacher of the gospel, he should make his living off of this. But I want you to know this. I never believe that that comes from you. It's not a wage as much as it is a gift from God that he's providing for me while I engage on this mission. Because if I start to think that's coming to you, then I'm going to put a, a lot of thought and pressure and expectation on you that should not be there. I'm provided... We're provided, my family is provided for by God. I can stand the test of this. My family, we eat. That's how I'm having to run. All right? We have a house over our head. We got a dog. If you want one, I'll freely give him to you. All right? We got some kids. Sometimes I'd give you them. All right? I got a wife, and she would gladly let you have me. All right? Uh, and so we, we, we are taken care of, but we are not taken care of by Mission Church. We're taken care of by God Almighty. Okay? So we have this same provision. 
Man, I, if you're looking to engage in mission, I believe that God will provide us for it. We must leave these things behind and preach this message at all cost. We have the same response. There are going to be people who think that you're crazy. And there are going to be people that love you for it. And there are going to be people who think you're crazy, but they still love you. All right? Pastor Justin spent about three hours last night with his Muslim uh, neighbor sharing the gospel with him. And they are on polar opposite ends of the theological spectrum. But man, they deeply love each other. Still. But there are going to be people in this world, if you're preaching the gospel, I want you to know that they're going to laugh about you. We'll talk about some of these responses that we're going to get from people in the next few weeks. So what are some things we need to consider about this specific ministry that God has called these men to? I want you to listen to me this morning. I think there needs to be some course correction. The church, and I'm speaking about the American church because God seems to be doing something different in the rest of the world. The church, just like the Israelites, is notorious for having seasons of deep obedience, don't we? And then seasons of massive disobedience. We're much like the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And I, I really believe that's course correction that God is doing in those people's lives. For hundreds of years, they've been walking in disobedience, and God turns the dial, and he takes 40 years to bring them back on course so that they can enter the promised land. That's very similar to what happens inside the American church, is that we have the tendency to drift in, into two categories. All right, so I'm about to paint a, a very broad brushstrokes here and, and tell you the story of two churches, a tale of two churches. And I think I've got a slide for this. And I understand before you start critiquing me on everything, these are the broad strokes. These are the extremes of these two churches. The first one is the inwardly focused church, often known as the disciple-making church. Some characteristics of those churches. Serious focus on God's word. Serious attention to church membership. Encourage people to have daily quiet times. School, uh, Sunday school or small group ministries. Evangelism is for a selected um, group or gifted number of people. Missions. They may send a few teams yearly to do different areas to different areas, or they support missionaries financially. Growth is usually figured out or, or determined by how deep can we go. And lastly, there are a few number of converts, and I put converts in parentheses because it can, it can be tough to tell who's an authentic Christian or not, but there are a few number of converts in baptisms. Then there is the outwardly focused church. This is what is known as the evangelistic church. There's a serious focus on reaching the lost. There's a large number of visitors that come in and out of their gatherings. There's lots of programs at the building to reach different demographics. The Sunday gathering, like what we're doing right now, seems to be the priority. Evangelism equals invite your friends to church, to the Sunday gathering. Missions, they may seem to send a few teams yearly to different areas or they support missionaries financially. Growth is typically determined by how many are there. So how many are in this program? How many gather on Sunday morning? Um, How many are in our small groups? And lastly, there are many converts in baptisms. Well, let me ask you a few questions for evaluation purposes. Uh, Which one of these churches is the more biblical one? Which one of these churches do you want to be a part of? And lastly, which one is Mission Church? Okay, understand that there are broad, many varieties, horses of different colors in each one of these, but to get our minds thinking... Now, the reason why I bring this up in regards to this passage is this. 
Can I suggest this morning that there is DNA in each one of these expressions of the church that should be celebrated? There are things in each one of these types of churches that, that we should honor, that we should thank God for that these type of expressions and things are happening. However, there are also issues within both of these types of churches that are seemingly off, that are seemingly issues. See, in, instead of a go and tell mission, the church has drifted toward being more of a come to us mentality. And that's in both of these. Instead of a, a going and, and living out as Jesus has sent out to preach, proclaim, and to care for those outside the wall, predominantly with inside of the American church, is in both of these. If you want to call it a discipleship-making church or a, an evangelistic church, um, that in both of these situations, it's really about how many can we get to come to us, and yet what is Jesus doing? What does Jesus tell them to do? Is to go out, to go to those people, to those folks. Now, we typically like to, to categorize churches again, and, and maybe you've not heard this language before, but within church or Christian ease, this is very common things to say, well, they're an evangelistic church, or they're a disciple-making church. But brothers and sisters, as I explore the Scripture, is Jesus' idea of church one or the other? Or is it both? Is it both of these? See, they will often say, man, you will very rarely ever find a really evangelistic, thriving, passionate church that is calling lost people to come to Jesus and receive Jesus, that you will very rarely ever find a congregation that is like that, that is also dedicated to what they call disciple making. And I'm also told that you will very rarely ever find a congregation that is sold out to disciple making that is really good at reaching out to lost people. And yet, I think if we're to be a Christ-centered church, is that the expression that is coming forth from us is a fighting for, against that drift, to be one or the other, but to be both of these. Now, these issues are often seen in how those belonging to these different communities view discipleship, evangelism, and missions. We like to compartmentalize these issues, don't we? This is discipleship. This is evangelism. And this is missions. We'll even hire pastors, won't we? This is our discipleship pastor. This is our evangelism pastor. And this is our missions pastor. But through and by grace, I want to try to press into this idea a little bit this morning. Man, when we read the New Testament over and over and over again, what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is calling them on mission and, and commission that includes all three of those things. It includes evangelism, it includes discipleship, it includes the mission. You can't have one of these things without the other. In many ways, discipleship has become about reading the Bible, which I think it includes. It's about reading through different workbooks or different Christian authors to, to encourage, which I think is extremely helpful. It's, a, it's about accountability, which I think is extremely valuable. However, when you put this that idea and that framework and call that discipleship only and place that through and view it through the idea of Scripture, I think you will see quickly a major void within that idea. On the other hand, evangelism without a deeply rooted in the Gospels, without being deeply rooted in the Gospels and doctrine and Scripture, 
We have a tendency to be more concerned about someone repeating a prayer or, or, or getting baptized than we are about them being taught everything that Jesus has told us to teach them. Is that not the Great Commission? See, we like to, to separate these things. We like to say, man, this is an evangelistic church, or this is a disciple-making church, or this is a, a missional church. When, when we look at the Scripture, man, you cannot have true biblical discipleship without evangelism and without missions. They are, they are the trinity of the mission of Jesus. They're the trinity of what Jesus has called his people to do. And to say, man, you're all about disciple-making, but you never share the, the gospel with the lost person is, is to discredit the depth of your discipleship. Brothers and sisters, Christians are disciples of Jesus who live as missionaries. That is what we do. It's in our DNA. We are compelled to do it. We have to do it. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we see a glimpse of this. Later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 6, 1, it says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so several years later, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what are the New Testament disciples doing? Traveling from place to place, city to city, house to house, what are they preaching? Jesus is Lord. And what's happening? Disciples are being made. Disciples are being added to the church. This is the process, and I know this sounds so simple, simple and yet I want you to know it's a degrees off within most of our churches from that being the actual practice. I love J.D. Greer, pastor of the Summit Church. He, he uses this quote in his book, um, Gaining by Losing. He says this, and this is a quote from one of his seminary professors. He says, the light that shines farthest will also shine the brightest at home. We don't have to choose between building our people up and sending our people out. In fact, they feed on one another. The deeper our discipleship goes, the broader our mission becomes. The more centered we are in God's word, the more sent we become as a church. And maybe one of the questions is, is that if you come across a person and they seem to be just this mighty man of God, this mighty woman of God, would be a question to ask them is, man, when's the last time you've shared the gospel with a non-believer? And if you come across an evangelizing machine, you know what you should ask them? What gospel are you preaching? Because some of those gospels are not the biblical one. They're a works-based gospel. They're a prosperity gospel. You see, you can't have discipleship without evangelism. You can't have evangelism without missions. They all work off of each other. They are all encompassing in who God has called us to be and who he has sent us to be. The church, the deeper we move, the more it lives on mission. One of my favorite miniseries of all time is uh, a miniseries that came out in the early 2000s called Band of Brothers. Anybody ever seen it? It's phenomenal. And one of the reasons why they call it the Band of Brothers, it's a quote from William Shakespeare, but um, you know why they were able to be a band of brothers? Because they were in war together. Together. They would be shot and they wouldn't want anybody to know it because they didn't want to be removed from the front lines of the mission. At all cost, they wanted to be in the front lines of achieving that mission. And what drew them together was not meals, okay? was not reading a book about war, but it was being in foxholes together, fighting for that mission. Though we shed blood, we band of brothers. See, 
Jesus seems to give small amounts of instruction followed by deployment. More instruction is given during the mission. Jesus' style of discipleship seems to, to be no experience needed on-the-job training. Jeff Vanderstelt, who wrote The Saturate Guy that we're working through is in our missional community, says this, Jesus didn't say, show up to class and I will train you, nor did he say, attend a synagogue and, and that will be sufficient. No, he called the disciples to join on the mission, follow me. And while they were on the mission with him, he trained them to be disciple makers. I will make you fishers of men. In other words, Jesus taught them the basics of making disciples while they were on mission of making disciples. Brothers and sisters, as I mentioned last week, I, I, I believe that it, it is true of most American churches. However, I am fully convinced that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that there is some major work that is happening, not only in Mission Church, but in lots of churches that are beginning to see that, man, we love Jesus, but we're off just a little bit in what he has called us to do. And so I'm encouraged by the, the books that are being put out, the conversations that are happening, the prayers that are taking place, the kind of resurgence of, of seeing this and the repentance from pastors and people who are going, okay, man, we've, we've made it just about discipleship or we've made it just about evangelism or, and it's, it's really all of those things. So I, I come before you standing here very comfortable and, or not comfortable, but excited about the possibilities that are out there. See, I'm, I'm a firm believer that change never takes place until we become very vulnerable. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip somewhere, either across the country or in a foreign? Okay. And this is going to be so true for you, what I'm about to say. And for those of you who have never done that, it's not to guilt trip you. I encourage you to go. But, but nothing exposes you and your sin like going on a mission trip. You will get more ticked at people whom you get on a plane and you're wearing those Christian t-shirts and they're lime green or bright orange, which is, don't ever do that, okay? And they say like, take Jesus to the world on it. And you stand there before you leave from the airport and you're all hugged up and you're loving life. You're excited. And about day three or day four, you're ready to kill each other, okay? You're hot and everybody starts talking about how hot it is. You're hungry. Everybody start talking about complaining about the food. Okay, this one person's laugh eh, is really annoying. And you want to punch him. And you're like, if I hear it one more time, I'm going to punch my brother or sister in the throat. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hit a woman, but you shake her to death. Right? Stop laughing like that. Right? I mean, anybody been there? It exposes your sin issues. Now, you're going there to share the gospel with other people. Because, again, I, I would have an issue. If you're just building something and no one ever shares the gospel, I don't think we can call that a mission trip. That's a service opportunity. A mission trip must first begin with the proclamation of the gospel. Then you build something. Then you hand water to something. Okay? Procl if, if proclamation is not there, it is not a mission trip. It's a good thing. We should do those things. But please hear me. Proclamation must transpire for it to be a mission trip. And yet, man, I've lived overseas for summers and all, all these sorts of things. I've, I've lived inside the United States as a missionary for two summers. And I mean, I'm just ready to kill these people. Why? Because it is exposing and realizing I'm going to share the gospel with these people. Yet simultaneously, while I'm sharing the gospel with these people, what is Jesus doing in my life? He's sanctifying my life while I'm there to minister to those people. This is the process of discipleship. This is the process of evangelism. This is the, the process. Nothing has exposed my identity and, and been more gut-wrenching in me dealing with my sin than planting Mission Church. It reveals to me every day, every Sunday morning, my identity that cannot be found in this church. My identity cannot be found in you. 
My identity cannot be found as being a pastor. My identity must be found as we learned this week in our missional communities. My identity is in Jesus. He calls me son. And because I'm son, he has compelled me, commissioned me to now go and live on ministry, to, to be involved in those things. And yet I would not have had that experience, I do not believe, unless I'm engaged in doing what God has called me to do in the planting of Mission Church. It is exposing me. It is growing me. It is sanctifying me in a way that would not be taking place in my life if I was not not engaged in mission. It is through the difficulty of the mission that God sanctifies and disciples our lives, not through just a book, not just through reading of the Bible, not just through prayer, but through the hardship of living on mission. And yet, if we don't engage in that, then that's not going to happen. It is not going transpire. Mission exposes our weakness. It reveals our sin. It forces us to practice the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't it, toward others. It reveals how selfish we are, how prideful we are, and the small view of God that we have that makes us cling to Jesus. Evangelism and missions is God's sanctifying agent in our lives. My prayer for Mission Church is but Jake uh, Mac Stiles says that we here at Mission would have a culture of evangelism. When we don't go to our city, we illustrate to our city that God does not come to us, but we must go to him. Do you get that? When we don't go, we illustrate to the city of Bowling Green that God doesn't come to you that you've got to go to him. And you know what that does to Christianity? It puts it in the same bucket with all the other religions of the world. You must work to your way to get to God. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus comes to us. This is never done out of guilt but it is done out of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Look at that passage where it says, you received without paying. What did you receive? The gospel. You did nothing to earn this. That's why we can't require any kind of monetary gift from anyone because we didn't do anything to deserve this grace that we have been shown. These men were not standing there and guilted into going. They're standing there and they're like, you want me to go do that? How go do that? That is such a humbling thing. They're not doing this out of guilt. They're doing this because of grace. They have received it without paying. The only one who's paid for grace is Jesus, and it cost him his life. And when we begin to see ourselves compared to that glory and to that grace and how he has lavished upon his enemies that kind of love, then what we, can we do? But however, the overflow and a, the desire of our heart and love for God is to go to our neighbor to love them as we have been loved, to be seen as God has seen us. We do this out of the overflow of this. We get to do this. As they did, proclaim the gospel. Because you have prayed, because you have compassion. Why? Because you see others as Jesus sees them. And the only difference between you and them is the measure of grace that you've been shown. So may we go and may we live. Let's pray together.